Now I'll never know if I was right. I'm Eddie Webb. And I'm Chris Spivey. And today we're going to talk about uh, John Nathan Turner and Earthshock here on John Lewis. Hello, and welcome back to our run of classic Doctor Who. Um, we are excited. Is that the right word? I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this stuff. <laughs> it's Doctor Who. We're always excited. Even right. when we don't like something, we're still excited. And speaking it's of don't like, I tell you that <laughs> Black Orchid is the worst episode of Doctor Who ever made. It's even better. It's even worse than a Colin Baker episode. Nay, nay, nay. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're, you're you're saying something more pertinent. No, I, than I, me. I just like how it's the it's worse than literally this entire Doctor's run. It's, it's like that's your that's your bar. <laughs> I I love Colin Baker. I think that the Sixth Doctor had some great audio adventures. Yes, the ones are going to watch in the coming weeks will not be on par with those. No, uh, and that's actually a good segue because although it broke down this way just by logistics, it's actually kind of a neat breaking point because the first run of Class Doctor Who was kind of really Doctor Who building strength to strength to strength, uh, both uh, critically and culturally. Uh, it kept growing audiences more or less. Um, it kept building on itself. We're now seeing the opposite. We're going to watch the shows kind of slow collapse into eventual cancellation. Um, it's not entirely devoid of, of cool stuff. Uh, there's actually, I, I would argue that the Fifth Doctor is unfairly maligned. There's actually some pretty decent stories in his run, but certainly we're seeing a, a a a continual quality decline until we get to a weird burst of brilliance right as the show is about to get canceled. I too think well, Andrew Cartmel was an exceptional person to change the the course of Doctor Who for the better. Yes, I I I completely agree <laughs> with you. Did I tell and, you that I get to meet him at a convention once in, oh no, in Maryland? Really? Yeah. He was awesome. Amazing. He was like super easy to talk to. He had, was handing out signed photos of pictures of him with Sylvester and um, God, so Ace is real name now and an ace. So it was, it was amazing. That's awesome. It's the same convention where I got to meet um, Sylvester at and he made, and I geeked out while he was super cool with my kid. I'll, I will always remember that. And I'll always take a moment to talk about, the time Zora and the seventh doctor hung out. Yeah. And then I look forward to talking more about that when we get there. But as Chris has, I wouldn't say alluded to because he's repeatedly beat me over the head about it. We also need to talk about John Nathan Turner. And it's a complex topic. And that's why we're going to let you delve into it, <laughs> giving us the, the deep down nuts and bolts, the crannies, the full nine nine yards of it. Well, I ask yes. you many questions that will make it very awkward for us to continue. There's a, there's a bus and spray paint on the side of the bus. It says awkward conversation. I am directly under it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, of I talked beforehand, I kind of want to talk about Jenny Turner all in this episode so we can get it done because he, he's, he's responsible for the show for a decade. And, and so He's going to be involved with it 
from he's evolved with it from the last season of Tom Baker till the end. So he is responsible for a, a, a staggering four doctors. But to kind of work backwards a little bit, John Nathan Hurd was the executive producer uh, of Doctor Who, and the executive producer at the time uh, is not quite what we know as a showrunner today. The showrunner position that we know today was actually two different positions in classic Doctor Who, executive producer and script editor. John Nathan Turner handled the production side and hired a, a number of different script editors uh, throughout his tenure. Uh, he was an, an associate producer, assistant producer um, during, I think, I, think, I think he's on produ production stuff since like all the way back to maybe the third doctor. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was primarily an assistant producer uh, during Tom Baker's run and inherited the role during the last uh, season of Tom Baker. Uh, and he inherited a doctor who had been on a, a staggering six years at that point in time in his step going to a seventh year uh, and who very firmly believed that he had control over the show. Uh, and JNT correctly recognized that he needed to transition to a new doctor. He to, to get, keep the show fresh. He needed to get Tom Baker to go. So that transition is a bit akin to kind of what happened with William Hartnell. In the terms of kind of letting someone who really didn't want to leave the position know they had to go out of the position. But so I, I set all that up because um, JNT has been controversial, controversial in fan circles for a very long time. And as it turns out, as with most fan things, it's for entirely the wrong reasons. <laughs> so let's start with the, the really sucky ones. In 2013, uh, a memoir was written about JNT uh, called JNT, The Life in Scandalous Times. Uh, and it was written specifically posthumously after John F. Turner had passed on uh, and also during the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who when it was going to get the most attention, which is people have complained about it. But to be honest, that is how you market a book, right? It's just, yeah. it's just marketing. Take advantage of a cultural moment to sell your book. Well, it's also how if you're telling an uncomfortable truth, you get more people to see it and engage with it and have actual conversations about it instead of it being buried. Right. Exactly. Similar to how a lot of the discussions around how uh, the British royalty handled their business happened right around the time of the coronation of King Charles, because there's a lot of tension on that. That's when you get the truth out. Yep. So for context, before I go into this, John Nathan Turner was openly gay and he was accused for decades of sexually assaulting uh, boys while his tenure at Dr. Who. It was he and his partner, correct? Yes. He and his partner both. This was complicated because that is the thing you say when you want to remove gay people from position of power. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a common ploy to remove particularly gay men from positions of power especially when they're openly gay at a time period where that was not culturally acceptable. And some would argue, perhaps correctly, that it's still not entirely culturally acceptable, uh, but certainly was not during the 80s. Uh, it, had, it was still quasi-illegal at the time in the UK to be uh, gay. Uh, so there was a lot of, of discussion around the topic, um, but a lot of people that he worked with kind of came out in defense of him. 
Dan and Chaz 13's book came out, and the person who wrote the book admits that he was uh, uh, lured into an office by JNT so that JNT's partner could sexually assault him, and he was 17 at the time. Defending himself with a copy of the script for Time Lash, which is frankly the best use of Time Lash that has ever happened, because uh, it's a horrible episode. But that's the only episode of Doctor Who that I think Paul Darrow ever showed up in. Well, that's unfortunate. But anyway, so some people have since come out and talked about how it's it's unfair to you know change against defend himself, blah blah blah. But also, even though he was ostracized within the BBC, he was still a man with some power and clout in the media. Uh, and so it is not fair to ask for a victim to wait to, to address his accuser, right? Um, mm-hmm. it, he waited until he was comfortable t- telling the story. Uh, and of course, there's no reason not to believe victims. We believe victims. So as far as we know, we, this is true. I want you- to touch a little bit on, on that, not specifically mm-hmm. related to JNT, but related to the concept that if there is, there's a, a stigma associated with being a victim in general for some reason mm-hmm. that I don't understand why our society has it, but there is an extra layer of it that's different if it's a male person coming out or a male pursuing person coming out saying that they were also victimized. There's, mm-hmm. It's different than when a female or female presenting person comes out and says it. There's a, still a level of something that's a, attached to them, but each one is different and each one is disgusting. And so I want to take a moment to highlight that and that the society that we live in of victim shaming is abhorrent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Men can be sexually assaulted and it is just as horrible <clears throat> as when women are. So there are a lot of people who turned a blind eye to this. Uh, this came out also around the time that another beloved a British staple also turned out to have been mm-hmm. using his authority to sexually assault children. So there's been a, a pretty heavy reconsideration of how things were handled within the BBC during the seventies and eighties. So there's all that. This is made more complicated by the fact that fans have hated GNT for a long time, but again, not for these reasons. Some of them have, given the information they had tried to defend him for the reasons I said earlier. It's like, this is allegations how many made for people like this. And it shouldn't be, they were trying to be allies to the best of their knowledge, right? It's the, it's just because it's a gay man doesn't mean he should be slurred like this, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, the reasons why he was tarnished by fans are kind of, they're not worse, but but they're, they're kind of made. They make the whole situation a little more bizarre, because a lot of what Jonathan Turner did as a producer are things that another gay Doctor Who producer with three initials, also to Davies, would do similarly for great success. So, uh, which leads me to kind of the time period we're talking about here is in the early eighties. <clears throat> this is when. Fandom becomes a real thing. Uh, uh, and it's for, for two real reasons. One, which you had no control over, which is that the rise of home video. The, uh, uh, 
VHS technology allowed Doctor Who to be rewatched and remarketed in a way that just did not exist previously. Um, and so people could watch these shows again and analyze them and talk about them at length for about two hours, roughly once a week. <laughs> arbitrary numbers I'm throwing out here. So frankly, the rise of things like VHS allowed things like Chris and I to do what we're doing now, right? Uh, this kind of fan discourse, while it existed, it, it ballooned during this time. The other was that, uh, which AT did have control over, was that recognizing that there was people who were hungry for information, there was a direct connection between the production office and the fans. Primarily through Doctor Who magazine, which started right before his run. Uh, and this was just a comic that happened to have some Doctor Who stuff in it. But over time, uh, they became more and more genuinely good, what I like to call fan archaeology, of trying to figure out what things happened in old serials and whatnot. Um, and, uh, but they were, again, they were doing this uh, via Marvel UK, just kind of on their own. But then uh, John Nathan Turner, when he came over, started directly talking to Doctor Who magazine uh, and started just marketing the show to the fans. So if I'm not mistaken, at least one of us has a subscription to the Doctor Who magazine right now, correct? Uh, I don't. Do you? I thought you did for some reason. Never mind. No, I, I, I have a bunch of the older issues as PDF copies, which I've flipped through, uh, but I don't have a, a subscription. Although I've been debating it because issue 600 is coming up. Is this the time to tell you that I have, I want to say 40 copies of them from when I was a, a kid and I would pay oh, to have wow. them shipped over to the U S yeah. I'm sorry, but you were saying that. No, 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 that's actually really cool. But yeah, so <laughs> Dr. Who magazine is kind of, it's one of the reasons why Dr. Who is frankly, one of the most researched television shows ever. Because ultimately they had to fill page count, particularly when the show gets canceled for a decade. And the, show, the magazine keeps going on. So they have to fill it somehow. Um, and, and the fans got really good at finding out information. Uh, and so JNT said, I should talk directly to them. I, I can tell them things and I can effectively get ahead of the story. Uh, can shape and, the story. Right. Which, again, looking back on it, makes things more complicated uh, because here's a person who was directly interested in that. Combine all of this with the fact that around the time, the reason why he got the job is because literally nobody else at the BBC wanted him. Uh, he planned to do Doctor Who for a couple of years and then move on to an actual show in his mind. Uh, and the, the Doctor is becoming increasingly marginalized by the BBC uh, around this point. And so Nobody else wanted the job, and they, they, it was basically a, a, a creative ghetto to put him in, to, to keep him quiet, and to let him do whatever he wanted, which he did in a whole variety of ways. <laughs> so, but again, the, the playbook that he did, which is I'm going to talk directly to the fans, I'm going to use the fan organs to communicate to the fans, to give them insight into what's going on, and to market directly to them where they didn't exist before are things that Russell Davies did in 2005 and is doing now. Uh, the core playbook absolutely works and did work for every all the stick that we have and probably will give G&T going forward. 
if it were not for him, this show probably would have been canceled around 1984. Uh, he kept it going for easily five years, maybe even longer. Certainly, it was stealth canceled at least once during the Sixth Doctor's run, explicitly canceled during the Seventh Doctor's run. But pretty much from around 84, 85 on, it was year to year whether the show was going to get renewed or not. And it didn't help that one of the BBC executives, Michael Grade, was explicitly in the media telling people he wanted to cancel the show. <laughs> so it's and didn't JNT, in addition to using the magazine, also start jumping onto the convention circuit? Yes, that, that's good. Thank you. That's the other thing. Convention fan conventions become a big thing. Prior to this, uh, there was a one-time thing called Long Leaked, um, which was basically kind of a Doctor Who show, but they invited fans to, and it exploded in a way they weren't expecting because fans did not realize they needed this community, but once they had it, they craved it more. So professional conventions became a very real thing, late 70s, early 80s as well. And yeah, JNT did this. And also, he was the one who recognized that there was a market in America for Doctor Who. So again, the reason why Chris and I have nostalgia for Doctor Who from the 80s and 90s is because of JNT. They, he explicitly made sure it got marketed to America. One of the reasons why Perry exists as a companion is because he wanted to market to American. Now that you mentioned Perry, do you want to talk about the JNT issues also associated with Perry? We have to it now. So since things have come out, uh, other things have since come out. Um, one, I have to talk about Matthew Waterhouse first since it can be relevant to this episode. Uh, Matthew Waterhouse played Adric was a teenage boy and for years did not want to talk about it because uh, Matthew Waterhouse again for uh, for reference is also gay didn't want to talk about it and frankly didn't want to involve Doctor Who for a long time uh, and then around the time this came out he opened up a little bit about it and for the past 10 years has been pretty active in Doctor Who since then he's been heavily involved in Big Finish as most Doctor Who actors are in fact he's written a novel um, he's actually a pretty decent writer uh, he's been interviewed for the first time uh, over the past around 50th anniversary. So, uh, but while he doesn't like to talk about it because he doesn't want his life to be defined by that, uh, so he has definitely admitted that he was at least approached by Jandy's partner. But also, Nicola Bryant, who played Perry, was also. It sounds weird, but she was sexually assaulted as well, but not in the same way. Uh, she was basically hired and explicitly told she was there just to basically be a tits and ass. Um, and she was constantly denigrated as an actor uh, for her physical attributes. And uh, apparently uh, JNT repeatedly kind of groped her to get her costume in place or to sexualize her more. He also and ensured that whenever she was in public, she couldn't be seen with her partner. She needed to be assumed to be single. She oh, had to attempt. Right. She had to say that she was an American, even if she wasn't American. Mm. And they also forced her to do, God, what was it? Like a, a pantomime series at the same time as they were filming Dr. Who. Mm. And she told him she didn't want to. And she had her agent contact them and say that she's not going to do that. And then they proceeded to make her do it anyway. And they punished her in, in ways. And they also, there was, I think there was a, a special that came out instead of having her do it. They brought back Janet Fielding to be with the sixth doctor to do that. 
So there's a lot of things that were constantly going on behind the scenes that we're not aware of. And some of the actors have come out now to start talking about them. And some of them probably still aren't saying anything. So there's a lot going on in the very, in this very complicated topic. Right. So uh, that's the reason why I kind of want to get this all out in the open now is because much like, well, uh, I'll say with, like with William Hartnell, but with William Hartnell, we don't have we, we have we don't have quite have a full. This had really happened with, with JNT. We do we, we have you know a smoking gun, um, but in both cases it's very complicated because if it weren't for this person, the show that we love today would not exist. And the other thing that is worth talking about is that Doctor Who specifically has always had an extremely strong gay fandom. Uh, and so having a gay man run the show meant a lot because not only was their representation there, but also he was able to shape the show in a way that spoke to that community in a very meaningful way. Russell Davis would not have been a fan of Doctor Who if it had not been for John Nathan Turner, right? So we have a direct relationship. If it weren't for J&T, Russell Davis would not have resurrected the show in 2005, and the show probably would not be on the air now. It, it's... Certainly, Rusty Davies doesn't talk much about it because he's saying, I never met the man, don't know him, I'm not going to talk about it, which is, which is fair. But there's always been strong gay fandom in Doctor Who uh, that continues to this day. Um, so it was easy for executives to paint an entire section of the Doctor Who community with one man's actions or two men's actions. And that did meaningful harm. Uh, so it's a lot. I will say, however, that very few of the actual actors involved have ever made that connection. It's always been at an executive level. <laughs> there, there are obviously exceptions, but for the most part, um, all the actors have been vocally generally really strong allies. Uh, especially uh, as things move forward. For example, many of the doctors came out uh, in favor of, of 13th Doctor. They're now coming out in favor of 15th Doctor. Um, so uh, people that have not gotten a paycheck from the BBC in decades still are pretty – they recognize that they have a certain voice and continue to use it. Uh, again, not everyone. It's a, it's, a, it's a very complicated relationship. People are very complicated. But in general, they did not let one person shape that narrative to the best of their ability. And But we can say, for instance, the fifth Doctor we're here to talk about today did not come out in support of the 13th Doctor. I'm not sure what he has said about the 15th Doctor either. I don't think he says anything anymore because I think he was he left X or Twitter at the time. Yeah. I'm not sure if he's returned to it. As far as I know, he's been fine. He said, <laughs> like, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what Judy does, um, something along those lines. And, and he has since also said that his initial comments were perhaps taken out of context. One thing I will say for Doctor Who magazine, at least, is – this is so weird to say, but it's true. It is a weirdly – you know the whole thing about game journalism? Game journalism is awful, whatnot. Oh, Fan yeah. Journalism. It, it is atrocious. I don't know if you can call it journalism. I said it. Right. right Come right, after that, me. Oh, wait. Point. Too late. You already have. Yeah. No, I completely agree. <laughs> And I would even go as far as saying most fan journalism falls in the same category. Doctor Who magazine has its moments, but generally speaking, it's actually pretty decent journalistic ethics, which is bizarre. 
because they, they they're open about like hey, you know what we're gonna report what the BBC tells us, um, and we're obviously not gonna talk too much shit about the BBC when they're process of making the show, but they're open about that. Um, but they also are not against saying hey we reported this turns out another thing happens, let's talk about that. When they wrote a mildly damning article about Colin Baker about 10 years ago, they invited him on to rebut it, and he did. And so the rest of the reason why I know is like they did interview Davison, and that was where he said, I think some of my comments taken out of context, um, but also he's an old man speaking on social media. Um, so how much of that is he misunderstood the platform? How much of that is his actual opinion sneaking out? That that's up to individuals to decide. Uh, but they did at least say, "Do you want to? Do you want to comment on this?" And how much of it is he still a working actor, right? That wants to continue to keep working, right? Um, I will say his his kids have been very supportive. Um, his his, his son in law and his daughter, they're sort of the grandkids again. So I mean, it's it's. People are complicated. What? But that just meant to say, wait, uh, let's talk about Peter Davison. I mean, aside from that one moment, he gets hired by JNT to take over for Tom Baker, which is the only other person who understands how hard that job is is Matt Smith. <laughs> how do you take over after one of the most popular doctors ever? Right. I would, I'd like to push back on that and say there's a third person that also understands that. Who? Shudigawa. You think, she, well, okay. You're right. You're right. Because of the specials. Thank you. You're right. Good pushback. I was say, the third, third title was not popular, but you're right. It's, it's Shudigawa also literally takes it up after 10 and again. Uh, so, yes, Shudigawa and Matt Smith are one of the people who really understand how hard of a role that was. And, and Peter just had to do it first. And specifically, it's given direction that to counterbalance Tom Baker, JNT is the reason we have the each doctor kind of oscillates on some axis. If one doctor is loud, next doctor is quiet. If one doctor is peaceful, next doctor is violent. If one doctor is manipulative, next doctor is flighty. I think that, that's broken down in modern times, but that was kind of how the how it worked for a while. But it had it well then it had an inherent flow of doing that beforehand because each of the doctors seemed to have had that beforehand themselves inherent but not explicit it was not explicit in the same way the jnt made it because of the i mean the second doctor is basically don't be the first doctor and we talked about all the wide and terrible ideas that patrick charton had to replace that with but they settled on the hobo but it's still there's still some connection there and then the third doctor is basically just john pertwee playing himself so it's not really an intentional decision it's just We've hired John Pertwee. But it is an intentional dissension because they said, we want you to play you. So that is still an active choice that is still made no, no, and I, localized. So I'm those... agreeing with you, but the active, I'm, I'm saying, what I'm saying is like, it, the directors didn't say, we need you to play it like X. They said, we're going to hire someone who fills this role. They told Peter Davison, we want you to play it this specific way, which is something that didn't really happen to the previous doctors. And, and each doctor, then they got a brief of like, we need you to play it as a different way from this other person that is the I, I would as you on him. I, I i mostly agree with you agreement with you they didn't tell them that we want specifically x they just wanted different they didn't fully they didn't finish their thought right exactly exactly 
and and John Pertwee and Tom Baker were hired to basically play themselves. And they did a great job with it, but that was basically what they did. Um, so Peter Davison was basically, again, he was hired to be, he was a very young actor. Uh, he was at that time primarily known for his work on All Creatures Great and Small. Yo, so hey, he's a, hey, Eddie. What? What is All Creatures Great and Small? I don't know. I haven't watched it. What? <laughs> how, how can you, how, oh. I am disgusted by you, sir. This podcast is over. <laughs> okay. All Creatures Great and Small, the short version of it, it was based on like James Harriet, who's a, a vet that goes to live in a small community set in the late 30s going into World War II, at least in the more modern version, I think was in this one too. And it sort of tells those stories. It's a, a heartwarming series. I want to say originally ran was a, a decade beforehand. and It was pretty long, yeah. Peter Davison came in around the third season as Tristan, the younger brother to the owner of the vet, not Harriet, who I want to say was from Scotland, who came to England. There you go. And so uh, fandom reviled the fifth doctor. Uh, The argument was that he was critical plans, but really it was because he was not Tom Baker, Um, which of course, Peter Davison was never going to be able to be Tom Baker. No one, no one, Tom Baker sometimes, Arguably, I should be Tom Baker. So he was told to play a very specific way. And granted, when I grew up, I, the Fifth Doctor was not my favorite Doctor for a lot, a variety of reasons. I love the Fifth Doctor. I, I, I loved it growing up, and I still like the Fifth Doctor now. So like, I, I, I didn't. I had a, a, about 15 years ago, I had a friend of mine who was a huge Fifth Doctor fan. We had a long talk about it, and I rewatched the shows since then. Um, and I realized that Peter Davison had the problem of being an excellent actor, saddled with very with scripts that didn't know what to do with him. And so he's trying to find space in the margins of the script to do interesting stuff. And when you see it, it's actually brilliant. Weirdly, also- his, his intro episode is where you see that the most, where he's mimicking the previous actors before him and their quirks and doing a fantastic job of nailing it. Part of it is, I think for the, at least at the start of the run, he went, there were three different script editors because they kept replacing them with other people. So there's a lot right. of constant changes. So there wasn't anyone to help come up with a solid voice. And J and T was more focused on the look and the aesthetic than the actual character. Right. And that's, that's kind of another reason why I, I want to do the breakdown is because JNT is going to go through a number of script editors during his run, and the show is going to change wildly each time. Right now, the work we're at today, uh, he is on Eric Sayward, uh, who I think we can charitably say was more inspired by perhaps things like 2000 AD rather than <clears throat> previous Doctor Who. A little more uh, action-oriented, which the BBC does Be- not do well. <laughs> Before you go into that, though, how was it? Let's take a moment because we were talking about the direction that Davison would have been given. Davison was given oh. a direction to be fallible mm-hmm. and not necessarily more human, but to be weak isn't the right word for it either, but definitely more fallible and less certain of himself than what Baker was. Yes. And not only is he dying down to bombast, but he's also uh, showing that he's flawed. Maybe that's the way I put it. And, and he also inherited 
a team of companions from the previous doctor who yes. stick with him for most of at least the first serial of his run. Those are his companions. Unlike yeah. previous doctors, we get to lose companions sooner. Right. Uh, so we've already talked about Matthew Waterhouse. He's playing Adric. Uh, Adric is picked up in a parallel dimension. Uh, he is a teenage boy who's a mathematical genius and kind of an asshole. There yeah, is the Wesley the, Crusher of Doctor Who, if you will. Yes. Only with somehow worse writing. Um, there is Nissa. Oh, I just blanked on the actor's name. Oh, Sarah Sutton. Thank you, Sarah Sutton. She is basically a medieval princess, effectively, for a, a space colony. <laughs> She's also very, very smart. Uh, but again, young and a bit naive. She's uh, the so master's she, daughter, Eddie. She's ta- yes, yeah, she technically her his her father was replaced by the master. Uh, he died and just never comes up again ever. Because do you, do you remember the name of her father? Tremas, which is an anagram for master. <laughs> That's the level we're working at here. Also, he was a statue briefly. It was a very weird episode. I love it. We should have done keeper trucking. Nissa's kind of playing the Romana role for a while until, again, the writers don't know what to do with her and she becomes increasingly marginalized, which is kind of what happens to most of the characters here. Uh, and then we have uh, Tegan Javanka, who is Australian and amazing. The great uh, Janet Fielding. Yes. Janet Fielding, who was on and offset very vocally feminist. Certainly, there are rumors that part of the reason why she was written out of the show is because JNT was tired of her bullshit. Uh, and what we know now, most of her bullshit was probably correct. But Tegan was often and repeatedly on the show derived as kind of a mouth with legs, and the fans kind of ran with that. Um, which is an unfortunate archetype of, of the, the quote-unquote bossy woman. Um, so when a woman takes agency for herself, she's seen as bossy and irritating. Uh, the show did not do great with that. But again, Davidson often saved scenes to try to add some nuance to those. And he and Janet both have an amazing chemistry on screen. Mm-hmm. So it's something that when you just read like the scripts or read the novels or whatever, you maybe – it's hard to see there's nuance there, but there, those two actors definitely brought a level of nuance to make Tegan one of the more genuinely cool companions from his time time period. Eddie, what happened to Tegan's aunt? Tegan's aunt was turned into a toy. She, she, How? She, she was compressed by the, the tissue compression eliminator. Yes, the best device in all of Doctor Who. Dumbest I love it. Ever. I uh, will die on that hill that it is the best thing ever and i you, fucking you, love you it will, to this you day you will die six inches tall on that hill <laughs> but i would die a happy tissue decompressed x writer <laughs> who is now a doll <laughs> uh yes oh by the way tom baker dies by falling off of a, a radio tower but he doesn't die that's he doesn't die he's mildly inconvenienced until the visitor comes I'm sorry, The Watcher. Right, because the moment is prepared for. I love that. Doctor Who fans are nothing will love some of... That's one of the things that was great about being a Doctor Who fan is that 
we can objectively recognize that some of this stuff is dumb, but still deeply love it. And <laughs> Logopolis is dumb, but I love it. <laughs> and that goes back to show you, we touch us back on JNT now, how much they wanted Baker out. Did they literally put the shadow of death following him around for an entire episode? Yeah. But so, but what happens as a result um, of all of this is that we get an era, at least early Fifth Doctor, that's kind of reminiscent, actually, of Troughton's era. We have a decently large TARDIS crew. We have a flawed Doctor who's kind of skirting the edges of the storyline and kind of manipulating things less centrally than, say, a Tom Baker or a John Pertwee. Uh, and we have characters who are a little more nuanced than they first appear to be, but a lot of that nuance comes from the actors, not necessarily from the writing. Um, so we talked about how Jamie is great, and a lot of that comes down to how the actor portrayed him. Zoe, which we didn't really cover much, but Zoe also, another one where she was just kind of a calculator, but she actually had some really good stuff because the actor tried to do something with them. Um, and also the chemistry between the characters made those scenes interesting. We have kind of a similar situation here. Uh, and we have a doctor who as also doesn't have quite control over his TARDIS like Tom Baker's doctor did. So um, one of the running gags is that he's trying to bring Tegan back to uh, her job at Heathrow Airport. And so she is a reluctant TARDIS companion, which we've not had since Barbara and Ian, frankly. So before we get too much into that, I'm curious, what is your opinion on having a TARDIS team? And I'm considering a TARDIS team to be like three or more companions. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with the structure. I do think it is very hard to write for. And every TARDIS team that's lasted more than a season starts to break down. It's in my experience. The 13th Doctor had this problem too, where like the first handful of episodes are pretty good, but then over time, certain characters get less and less writing and eventually a character starts to move to the forefront of the TARDIS team. In this case, what so what JNT was going for explicitly, uh, according to interviews, was that he was trying to replicate soap opera structure here. He's trying to get a large cast of people who didn't agree and didn't get along, and that bickering would drive the momentum of the show. Uh, the problem is nobody knew how to write for soap opera. They knew how to write for Doctor Who. So some of the really obvious soap opera beats are just gone. Like. He, uh, not sorry, Anissa's father was killed by the master. The master shows up repeatedly, and she never once mentions, oh, by the way, you killed my father. It's a pretty straightforward, basic soap opera beat you could do. It's not until Russell T. Davies where he actually melds soap opera and Doctor Who more effectively. So I love the idea and concept of a TARDIS team. And I agree, it's never been done well, but a lot of that goes back to what you were touching on. It always deals with the writing. There yep. isn't a focus on having that part of it. And I think if there was anyone that cared or loved having a TARDIS team, that would have shown through and made a huge difference yep. because like that dynamic would be easier to write for. And even with the team here, I will give you Matthew Waterhouse on the whole is not the best of the actor of the four, but Absolutely he not. holds his own. He, he can do what needs to be done. He was maligned because he was in, like an 18 year old kid. Like that was a lot of people stick for him. <clears throat> but if they had had anyone that would written 
good material for them, they, that TARDIS team would have been phenomenal. Yeah. Because they're this... so different that they could meld and play off of each other. And right. it's one of the few times that companions come from vastly different societies. Yeah. That's beautiful. And, and again, uh, this is going to be a common refrain, I think, going forward, but uh, Big Finish proved that the, the model does work. Um, because this exact team has had several audios written for them, and they are far and away better. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's not the actors. It, it, it's not the structure. It's not the concept. It's just the writing. And television writers, again, they didn't know how to write for this structure. And they were fr- – at this point, again, Doctor Who's – it briefly gets – a little more money because it, we're getting clo- uh, the the show gets close to the 25th anniversary and then pretty rapidly after that starts to suddenly lose cash for the duration um so jnt was just trying to get the show made and trusted his script editor to handle the rest and the script editor wasn't on the same page with jnt wanted uh so there's a lot of 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 creative conflicts happening and i i will say unabashedly again though that i love this crew i do like I, I like the fifth doctor for a long time. The fifth doctor was higher on my list of doctors. I love how he interacts with Tegan. I, I have always been a long time Nissa fan simply because she reminds me somewhat of Romana. Mm-hmm. And I liked Adric. It has a very strong family dynamic to it that was squandered. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so moving into Earthshock. One of the reasons why I mentioned the Doctor Who magazine connection is that this is one of the earliest examples of Doctor Who specifically being shaped in response to fan interaction. Uh, because prior to this, uh, it was the 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 perhaps obvious point was brought up that especially for the Dalek episodes, you'd have something of the Daleks, you know, evil Daleks, good Daleks, whatever. Um, and then the end of the first episode, the big reveal is there's a Dalek in it. Which seems weird because, like, but that's the whole point. I mean, it's literally in the title. Why is this a big surprise, right? We now know in hindsight, the reality is that the dark showing up is not the surprise. It is the cathartic payoff for the thing you're expecting over the first episode. But that's not what was perceived at the time. So his response, <clears throat> response to this was that he wanted the Cyberman to be a surprise. That's why it's called Earthshock. Cyberman is not anywhere in the title. And he very, 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 very hard stomped on Doctor Who magazine. Make sure they would not announce this anywhere. Restrictions – access to the set was very limited. Scripts were very much detailed. It's very Marvel Cinematic Universe style of keeping information close to the chest. And it failed. It still leaked out. Well, and also in the script, they went so far as to having the cyber leader simply referred to as a leader and the lieutenant as lieutenant without saying they were cyber. Mm-hmm, right. Uh, it, it, was, it was an interesting at- early attempt to try to manage this because, again, JNT is in a world now where he has fan archaeologists who are, and journalists who are very good at their jobs. Um, so he needs to – while he has a non-antagonist relationship with those people – he still has to balance the information again. Something that Rusty Davies has has done just five and recently um, is finding that right balance of sharing and keeping information out. And to that extent, that's also why Matthew Waterhouse shows up in the next episode, Time Flight. Oh God, it's a horrible episode. After <laughs> this one, because he didn't want people to know this is where the character dies. 
Um, they were, and then they just flipped the episode order. And I have thoughts about Adric's death, but I want to save that for when we get there. Yeah. I, I mentioned it just while we're talking about production yeah, 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 yeah. and how they're no, hiding no, no. what's going on. Because Adric's death is one of those weird moments in Doctor Who history that is has a, a gravity to it, but also is rubbish, which is kind of Doctor Who in a nutshell. Any other production things you want to talk about before you start getting the synopsis? Uh, that's my, um, I, as I mentioned last episode, I actually have watched the uh, Tales of Tardis version of this. Um, so this is the version I watched was edited together into effectively a one and a half hour movie. Um, and hmm. there are some bits filmed beginning and ends, which if you're not in the UK, I think you can watch them on YouTube. Uh, but basically boils down to um, Peter Davison and Janet Fielding hugging. Uh, which is fine. It was lovely. Uh, it shows why those, as I said before, those two have an amazing chemistry and they still have it today. Um, it helps. They've been playing characters on Big Finish pretty much constantly for the past decade. But uh, they, I just say that for the ends because they try to fix the problems I have with Adric's death. Because ultimately it's gonna, they're talking about Adric's death. So I'll say it for Hey, that. Eddie, before you go into the synopsis, you keep mentioning this thing called Big Finish. Nope, not talking about it now. What is Big Finish? <laughs> Okay, I want I want to save a lot of this for a future episode we're talking about, um, because there's a fun period give, where Doctor give me doesn't a, exist. A high level of what Big right. Finish is. But, three but, sentences. But One, two, three. But, I'm counting. No, I'm not. Fuck you. <laughs> Big Finish is a professionally is a professional producer of audio drama directly to CD and digital download uh, that primarily focus on a lot of licensed products. Um, one of them is Doctor Who. They have been producing officially licensed Doctor Who audio dramas for over 20 years now. How that happens and what's going on and why that is a thing that exists is a big topic that is much better told in the context of what happened when Doctor Who actually ceased being on the air. So we'll save that for another conversation. Hey, Eddie, I'm one of the, the kids too, a hip youngster. You said the Hello, word CD. Kids. What is a CD? Okay, we're not, no. <laughs> remember when i said where i was like you have found ways you tried to, to get me to not talk about the thing i want to talk about google compact disc if you really don't know what it is oh god they also made tapes originally you know that they, they originally, i did not know they made tapes yeah, that is for the first couple of years they actually released in cassette cassettes that's a waste of money right so anyway you're shocked uh i'm gonna as usual this is kind of rough chunk, especially because I watched it not as episodes, so probably won't map the episodes. But uh, as the TARDIS materializes in Earth's future, Adric argues with the Fifth Doctor about the lack of attention and respect he receives compared to Nyssa or Tegan, echoing most of the writers. They explore a series of caves and are caught by soldiers who, led by Lieutenant Scott. Professor Kyle, accompanying Scott, accuses the four of killing the rest of her archaeological team. Doctor convinces them to help and Kyle leads them to the bodies of her team near where they found an odd metal hatch. The group is attacked by androids, killing some of Scott's men, but the Doctor defeats them. He suspects the androids were guarding the hatch, and eventually opens it to reveal a powerful bomb that could destroy the planet. The Doctor and Adric defuse the bomb and trace the signal back to a freighter that is entering the solar system. Scott and Kyle join the Doctor as they return to the TARDIS and travel to the freighter. Uh, Doctor instructs the others to wait in the TARDIS while he and Adric explore the ship. They find a similar number of corpses in the cargo holds before they are caught by the ship security and taken to Captain Briggs where they try to explain their situation. Kind of pause there. I have an instant issue with your synopsis. Okay. 
You talk about the androids and the doctor defeats him. That is inaccurate, my friend. Do you know who defeats him? Please enlighten me. Adric. Because if you remember your, your fight scene, they're all pinned. Adric shows up and throws a rock. And I have to bring this out because it's the one time the doctor says his name like he cares. And they say, who's that boy? He goes, that's Adric. And there's an excitement in Peter Davison's face when he delivers that line that you never see again in any scene related to Adric. So Adric saved the day. He throws a rock. Hey, use what you got. (laughs) But your point to kind of loop around to the beginning of this is the show. This is the show trying to understand the soap opera model without actually understanding what makes soap opera work. So they look at it. It's like, well, we'll just have them argue with each other constantly and that'll produce drama. And so we have the doctor. So, uh, so Adric as I mentioned before is from parallel dimension and the TARDIS kind of, got sucked there during Tom Baker's run and then found a way out. It is not easy to transport between dimensions. And in fact, it actually just consistently has been a weird rule for Doctor Who. It just doesn't happen very often. Um, and so Adric is trying to plot a way home. And they argue about it. And what's really frustrating watching it again is that Adric is really not asking for much. <laughs> He's like, I think I can plot the way home. I am a mathematical genius that you have repeatedly proven this. Please treat me with the same respect you treat your other people on the ship. And the doctor goes, nah, basically. And just like, just says no. Do you, do you realize why this scene is so magic for me? Why? Is that the number of like in-show references and jokes they're dropping throughout this is astonishing. Yes. We get Romana. We get eSpace. We get uh, like the monitor. Then we get, if you look around the room, there's bits that Adric's picked up from the previous adventures of the fifth doctor, like right. the mass from some things and like from Kinda, like their little symbol and everything all throughout that scene. So it shows you that Adric has cared about their adventures and is collecting stuff. Right. And that's what's, what's, it's a good point because um again, like I said before, this is the show starting to be shaped by fan expectation, and this is a show where continuity starts to really matter. It, it's kind of mattered before. I mean, Doc, Doctor Who's never been completely adverse to continuity. It's just that the reality of being able to go back and watch a previous show and check details never really existed before now. Now it does. And so JNT is saying things like, we need to reference these things. Jane teasing, insisting that continuity exists. Uh, so yeah, if you have not watched the final season of Tom Baker, half this conversation doesn't make sense to you because it's all reference to the previous doctors one entirely. We, we almost covered eSpace. I was pushing hard for us to do like an entire eSpace run, but Eddie was like, no, I don't want to do eSpace. Honestly, I, I would, I would love to go back and talk about space vampires and space lions. I love the fact that the vampires are the Time Lord's greatest enemy. Yes. More so yes. than the dialects. Uh, so um, the idea of this episode obviously is to set up that the Doctor secretly cares about Adric um, and doesn't realize it until it's too late. And this is kind of the worst way to do that. Because, again, what Peter Davis is doing here is that he's been clearly given a script where it's like the Doctor is, is being touchy and, and just 
doesn't want to deal with this, which is something that Tom Baker, particularly later Tom Baker, did a lot. So what Davidson's doing in this scene is actually really interesting when you watch it is he's trying to inject a certain amount of I don't want to talk about it because it's uncomfortable for reasons that I don't want to explain, which actually makes the scene work better than it should. It's not just he's just like, don't talk, don't, don't mess my TARDIS, which is how the scene's clearly written. Clearly written like, don't mess my TARDIS, don't mess my ship, leave me alone. And, and it, it's more like the doctor's coming across like, I don't understand why this matters to you. I travel in time and space and think it's awesome. Why don't you get that? But none of that is in the script. It's all in how he's performing it, which is really, really great and salvages that scene. And it also deploys puts out that while Davidson's doctor appears to be more human than Baker, he is more alien than Baker was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, right. That is some exceptional, great acting that we're getting from Davidson that is constantly overlooked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. I mean, again, we haven't had this kind of mercurial doctor since Trouton in a lot of ways. So I'm gonna keep going back to that because I honestly a lot of what I like about Troughton I find I like in the Fifth Doctor. It's the same kind of vibe. Um, and so this is a scene that's frustrating because structurally it, it it doesn't make sense. But watching these two actors finally act, it's like why is this happening now in Edric's last story, <laughs> right? And you for a future podcast you may hear Davidson say something very similar to that. Mm-hmm. And, but it also another point would be that he doesn't want to take Adric home and that sort of comes through. But at the same time, is if you've been watching the show, then you think, is he doing the same thing for Tegan? Like, is he purposely right. not able to take Tegan home? Right. Because Nissa doesn't have a home anymore. Yeah. Thanks to the master. But again, like, no, that's in the dialogue. It's all in how Dave's performing it. That reluctance, you can you can make that inference pretty easily, but it, again, the scripts are not at all reflect this. Uh, instead, the script would much rather focus on the space marines. They're totally not space marines, but they're absolutely space marines. Really? They just look like workout people with me for those costumes they're wearing. <laughs> maybe maybe there are some like bike messengers that got some guns somewhere along the way. I, I just love it. Like, this is an archaeological team. It's like, yeah, but everyone's really heavily armed for an archaeological team. <laughs> oh, God. It, it's, it's, if, if you, it, if someone had said, oh, this is a Blackwater archaeological team, I would not have been completely surprised. Because that's very much the <laughs> private military vibe about this whole thing. Because do we know what they are, actually? Because I'm trying to think back to the episode now. They don't really have insignias. They refer to each other by titles. But right. there's never anything solidly put on. Like, even in third doctor episodes where they fought like armies of people, they would have real uniforms, like little symbols yeah. and everything. I, it's been a long time. I read the novelization of this once and I have vague memory that they were, they were basically corporate security. Uh, Cause this is a corporate dig. Um, and they were corporate security. That is my understanding of what the intention was here. But again, it's not coming across the screen very well. So, I, I want to take a moment before we get back into it proper to say that having now we took a break and we're coming back from leverage and hustle and everything else. It is a stark punch in the face 
to see no diversity. Like, yeah, I was smacked in the face watching this when I when I popped it back in. Having when we watch them in order, you still notice it, but it's not as painful of a hit as seeing like great diverse characters doing amazing stuff to come back to just seeing white people. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. There you go. Yes. It's Sharing also a, a bit of a punch because um, we also watched a lot of shows with, even if not all the shows were like heavy action, when they did the action, the action executed well. And this is not. This so obviously wants to be a military sci-fi action punch up. And that's not what the BBC does well at this time. It does people in silly costumes talking to each other in rooms very grandiosely. That, that's what Doctor Who does well. So you see the scenes where Doctor and Adric having an emotional conflict are being mismanaged and all the attention clearly focused on the action sequence, which the budget is not stretching to. So you have Adric throwing a rocket androids. I will say, though, the fight scenes in this definitely are on par with the first season of Star Trek Next Generation. Hand-drawn little laser beams. I, a a tar-like right. swamp monster popping up. Yeah, first season TNG is bad, man. The, the one difference between the two, as I would have made this joke now, is that here they focused on having the entire crew have conflict among the TARDIS team. While Roddenberry was like, the one thing we cannot True. do is have conflict amongst the crew. Right. Which works better? Only looking at this episode in the first kind of season. Oh, of I mean, it, from that perspective, this works way better, right? Because one of the things I like about Doctor Who over Star Trek, I like both, obviously, but one that's like about Doctor Who more is that people generally are assumed to not get along. The default is people are not going to get along, and then eventually they do, whereas Star Trek is kind of the opposite. It was like they assume that they will get along until they don't. Um, the reasons why I like Deep Space Nine the best is because Deep Space Nine does not take that as a default. It goes in interesting directions with it. So if this had been a Star Trek episode, the totally not corporate security private military guys would have been completely competent and on top of their jobs and have been a strong chain of command and then it's maybe slowly <laughs> break down to the end. Here it's like, no, these guys are – they're not bad at their jobs. It's just that the job they're here to do and the job that they need to do are two different things. <laughs> and the doctor's like yeah I don't care about any of this nonsense I just want to poke at this hatch with a stick and see what happens <laughs> literally poke it with a stick <laughs> so anything else about this chunk of space marine nonsense we have an archaeological dig that they're stumbling into that's the down there. We get ever. dinosaur bones. We get the doctor explaining stuff to Tegan. I think Nissa knowing more about ancient earth than Tegan. Yeah. I uh, think uh, the that's... writers forgot that Nissa's not from earth, not a future right. earth either. Right. Right. There's also, <laughs> again, this is so funny uh, because the idea was, Johnny Turner really wanted Cyberman to be a reveal. Wanted that to be the big kind of end the episode on Cyberman showing up. And as a result, you have so much padding at this part. Like, yeah, like we're faffing around with dinosaur bones and 
which is a plot point that never comes up again. At, hey, that is well, the okay, crux does come up of the again, final but... episode. It is it is the the reason this entire episode exists. It's it, it's a throwaway line. <laughs> so yeah, Teddy does come back at the end. That's fair. But also the Mexican man with the hatch and the bomb is just time killing. Do you, but the androids though? Do you know where uh, one of those androids come back? Did they come back in? Did they come back in uh, Five Doctors? They do. They uh, smack a silver coat of paint on that big bad boy, and there we go. So I thought. Which, funnily enough, it then kills a whole bunch of Cybermen. <laughs> Irony. It was an interesting drop line that from Tegan that the TARDIS has unlimited power. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> but it's the little converter that has a limit has a filter on it. So right. that was. But then. Maybe, because if we go back to the Eighth Doctor movie, that there's a heart of a star in the TARDIS, I think, according to uh, Eric Roberts' master. Black hole. Plus black hole. I don't remember. I just, I saw that movie <laughs> once. Uh, I recently had a friend of mine try to convince me that the uh, Eighth Doctor movie was good, and I'm still considering the point. I, I don't see it. Paul McGann was good. The movie was not Paul good. Paul McGann was fantastic. But this, the all joking aside, the final scene between Adric and the Doctor together defusing the bomb is an important plot beat because it shows you how smart Adric is. In addition to plotting coordinates to come out to then be here to help the Doctor do this thing, and all he's wanted for this entire time is to learn from the Doctor. Right, right. So, so, I don't want to look forward too much, but Adric here versus, say, Rose. What yeah. happens is that. If this had been structured better, Adric would have always been having at least small moments in every episode to prove his utility to balance out his, his irritating qualities. So that you grew to, if not like Adric, at least respect Adric, so that when he dies in this episode, there's a, 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 a genuine loss. The problem is that all of the competence is crammed into this episode. Well, we have a previous episode where the master steals Adric to use him to power his Tardic through mathematical equations. I, I, I okay. <laughs> the, if you the, all can see Eddie's face when I bring these up, it is like I'm in the room with him and I'm, I'm like pouring my coffee on him on his head. It, it's one of those things where, like, if you say it out loud, it sounds nonsense, but I really love the bid mead run of yes, the the Tardis is actually made of ossified mathematics and it's like this makes no <laughs> sense but i love it yeah you're right it's literally like when you, when you explain it it's like okay i have to give so much context to understand to explain this plot of this stupid show uh but yeah the bid me was the previous scriptwriter, uh, and he was really into let's make doctor into an actual sci-fi show which was just the wrong move but it was the wrong move in such a glorious way because like his attempt to make it more scientific ends up making way more magical than it ever was before. But that goes back to the whole crux of it though, is that any science that is so advanced beyond you appears to be magic. Like that is right. a beautiful conceit. And, that, and that's what I love about the, the early bid era because it's like, yes, this entire city is made of mathematics. Just change the word mathematics to magic and nothing changes in the episode. <laughs> And so having Adric be functionally a child magician was a brilliant hook that just nothing happened. 
Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Throughout this, the Doctor and the humans... uh, Okay, that's my fault. The Doctor and his companions are unaware they're being monitored by the Cybermen who seek to destroy the Earth. This is the big reveal. Uh, When the bomb diffused on Earth and the Doctor now interfering here, the Cyber Leader decides it's time to take command of the freighter. They leave the sealed containers they stowed away in and begin to march on the bridge. The ship's crew, along with help from Tegan, Scott, and Kyle, attempt to barricade their progress, but the Cybermen overpower them, killing Kyle and capturing Tegan, and soon the Cybermen control the bridge. Using Tegan to get the Doctor in check, the Cybermen install a device that locks and controls the freighter after setting it on warp speed collision course with Earth, expecting antimatter engines to be powerful enough to destroy the Earth. I'm actually going to pause there. So, the big reveal is Again, I, I watched this as, the, as it edited together. So in the original episode, it's the, oh my god, it's Cybermen, and that's like the end of the credits. When you watch it edited together, it shows you how weak this reveal is because it goes, it's the Cybermen, and then they go on talk about their plan. And it's just really, like, you, you, yeah. You think this is a weak ending? I think it's you- one of. I'm not saying it's the weakest. I'm just saying it's pretty weak. Okay. Because I was going to say, remember that time when uh, Tom Baker encountered the Mintats twice. <laughs> Oh no! I bet. The 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 bullshit Doctor Who cliffhanger is one of the things I, I kind of love, right? Especially the the literal cliffhanger the Seventh Doctor has in Dragonfire, where he hangs off the cliff and no. then climbs over it. Where where he climbs down, he puts his umbrella on there and literally climbs down his umbrella for no reason to hang over there. That is like the crux of it. It's like, hey, I am in trouble because I it need to end an episode. Reminds me, and I'm, now I'm going to be the person who takes us way off tangent. It reminds me of my favorite gag in Transformers because there's a transforming cliff jumper, and there's one episode where all the Autobots are jumping over a cliff and he fails to hit it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, so it's like the, 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 the rubbish cliffhanger is, is one of the kind of secret joys of Doctor Who, but this is not rubbish in the – it's fun way. It's rubbish in like just nothing happens. It's like it's Iron Man, and they're doing a thing. Okay. Um, so kind of well, just, we're on so the Cybermen. Together, it's just like, uh, okay. <laughs> While we're on the Cybermen, these are some of my favorite Cybermen because you get to see the jaw inside and the other bits to show yeah. you that there are still people there and they're not robots. Like this, is this, added, uh, is this Banks as the cyber leader right now? Uh, I believe so. And But these are also... Shows you some of the horror associated with being a Cyberman without it being horrific because it's still built for kids. Right. Yeah, totally. And they are definitely more emotional here than what they let on too. And it's, I think it's an, and it's definitely an intentional choice done. Yeah. But I have to agree with you. Like Cybermen are, are more inconsistent. Well, I won't say they're more risky than dogs because that's ridiculous. Dogs are impossible. Awful. Impossibly. <laughs> but the Cybermen leading up to this were kind of just robots, effectively. But yeah, David Banks is the cyber leader for six years, and this is his first of his run. Um, and, and this is my favorite version of Cybermen, too, because much like when the Daleks are written well, it's the – they say they're emotionless, but in fact, they're just clearly angry all the time. And so the cyber leader – by having a continuity of an, a cyber leader played by the same actor through multiple stories, you get this great thing of like, he's got an agenda. I mean, we don't, there's implied there's a, maybe this specific cyber leader had a previous encounter 
with the doctor, but like he wants the doctor. And so he makes decisions that are not logical. They're purely about getting revenge, but he frames it and coaches it like illogical decisions, which makes the cyber Cyberman much more interesting in this incarnation. So yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you. This is my favorite run of Cyberman, frankly. So one of the reasons I love the Cyberman so much, I think this is the first episode I ever saw with the Cyberman in it. So oh, for me, wow, okay. this is like my establishing what Cybermen should be. And I've gone back to see other ones. I've gone forward. But this serial is why I love Cybermen. And one of the original things they thought about having the cyber leader survive to come back. Mm-hmm. Instead, yeah. they just let him be other cyber leaders. But I think it would have been great if he had lived to come back, which I think is an idea that then, oh, I forgot his name now, who did the 13th run. The run of the 13th Doctor Shippo? sort of took and they had like their Cyberman that sort of changed and became something else. It was like a reoccurring villain. Right, right, right. Yeah. And it's it's by having David Banks do it, it's it's implicit that there's a continuity there, even though it's explicitly not in continuity. But you're right. It's it's I I mean I joked it's a rubbish reveal because it is a rubbish reveal, but and the Cyberman's plan, like most Cyberman plans, are just kind of okay. You, you you're gonna you're gonna smuggle yourself onto containers to take over the planet, okay? But this is in the midst of this. Let's have a big punch up with the Cyberman thing. When the Cyberman and the Doctor are talking, it's genuinely good. Um, so it's like almost in spite of itself. When the Doctor is is talking to this incarnation of Cyberman. And the doctor's poking at the obvious emotions Cybermen are trying to deny. There's really cool chemistry there. It, it does get better, particularly like as much as Silver Nemesis is also kind of rubbish. There's some good stuff in Silver Nemesis too, when the seventh doctor <laughs> is explicitly doing that stuff. And it's nice that they did like an in-show recap of the previous doctors and their encounters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I want to point out, it goes back to what we mentioned then. It goes first doctor, second doctor, fourth doctor. They totally did not show up for Pertwee at all. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 interesting. Interesting choices. And they summed up Doctor Who in one sentence. I, I thought Time Lords weren't supposed to interfere. This this Time Lord does nothing but interfere. <laughs> Boy, does he! And so, like, but again, like, I mean, the, the plan doesn't make a ton of sense, but. While the action is also a bit down, the actual if you if you just this in your head from being an action serial to a horror serial, the Cybermen steadily and methodically mowing down the military people to take control of the ship is actually pretty creepy. It it, it doesn't visually land that way, but the concept of it is actually pretty scary. Um, and this is again when Cybermen are, are done well when they're something more than just zombies. Uh, but are actually just slow, methodical murder machines that are mad at you for having organic parts. They're actually really cool and, and genuinely a, a good monster. One of the the bet, one of my favorite, I'm going to say best, one of my favorite big Finnish audio adventures is called Spare Parts, and it's about Cybermen. Spare Parts, and Davison. Yeah. It is creepy as fuck, and it shows you what the Cybermen do. And yep. that slow reveal throughout the course of it. Mm. Yeah, no. Spare Parts is the genesis of Daleks for Cybermen, um, and it is a fantastic serial. Uh, but yeah, so like Earthshock, it, it's funny, like I, I, I've never been a fan of Earthshock because like 
all I remembered was the the pew pew, and it's like I, I didn't like the pew pew. But it, there's all these other bits of the script where it's like, okay, we have to make it an hour and a half long, can't all be pew pew. So we, I guess grudgingly I put other stuff in there, and it's the other stuff that's all the good stuff. Um, so the cyber leader talking to his subordinate about his plan is nonsense. But what David Banks is doing by putting so much menace into that performance, you get, again, this undercurrent of, 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 of a nuance that doesn't exist in the script, but the actors are bringing to it. So the actors just trying their best to elevate the script. It's, it's, it's genuinely really interesting. It's like, so it, it's all about the chemistry and what the characters are doing. And so you kind of squip past the actual script itself. And so it's kind of a shame that the actual human subcast here are kind of just, eh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I know you, you want to move on. I can tell just by the, the look in your face. When they defuse <laughs> a bomb and they're getting aboard the TARDIS, he says, and they don't, and the doctor doesn't want him to come, but it goes back again to show you how easily pushed this this version of the doctor is. And they say, we want to come with you. And he goes, oh, okay, you can come with me. When you jump into the ship, why is there literally the archaeologist and like two soldiers? If you're bringing someone to fight Cybermen, <laughs> two soldiers, are maybe three. I give you three because I think there's a scene in the TARDIS where they bring an extra out of nowhere. So they have three soldiers. Right. Right. And an archaeologist. Right. What good is that? Be- because that's all the BBC can afford to hire for the day rate. <laughs> oh. Because again, I think that's that's this kind of military sci-fi is not what this show is able to do. So it was a mismatch in scripts with things. But like if it had been a couple of soldiers, like okay, we have a small team a strike team here to do this thing they could have turned out and make this work but that's not what it was applied and it's applied there's this whole military unit here and they're just shuffling people around in slightly different costumes make it look bigger than it is and then it breaks down like you said exactly the sinks like we have this tiny control room set and we have four actors on the day and so we have to make it look like it's important then it's just it's just aboard the ship i cannot tell you how much i love the fact that we had an older woman as a captain and her yep. First, uh, like her lieutenant was also a, a slightly older, but definitely more professional woman to show you like mm-hmm. their chain of command. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I, again, complicated things. But one of the things that JNT did pretty often was um, uh, when scripts would come in, he would randomly flip, uh, gender flip some of the characters to, to get, get more balance in. So some of that some of that comes down to some scriptwriters internalized that and did better and some of the directors internalized it better but that was something that JNT talked about a fair bit was like I wanted to see more women on screen people are complicated and again like the 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 the, the way the cybermen are written here the cyber leader are like logically if we capture one of the doctor's companions we should just kill them because they make it stop messing with our plans. But the cyber leader specifically told on to Tegan, and they like structurally, it's the we kill the bit players and we keep the supporting or the main cast because that's how television works. But the logic cyber leader gives is that it will the doctor will react and, and the doctor will not prevent us from doing anything we want to do. But the way that it's performed is very much and fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> which I love. 
God. All right. Anything else about that junk? No, I'm I'm good. Um, so just to move on, that's what I was saying. Is the doctor Simon then ordered the doctor to take him, them to his TARDIS to escape, leaving behind Adric Briggs and the other crewmen. Uh, Adric is able to pass the doctor his gold badge for mathematical excellence before they depart, knowing that Cybermen are allergic to gold. Oh my god, okay. Uh, so, I, I have to talk about this because it's it's makes no goddamn sense. Um, but it does make sense in a weird way. So, ostensibly, because gold is soft, if you shove it into the breaths regulators on hey, the Cybermen. Hey, 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 that's the end. We're not there yet. No, no, no. no, no this is established in Tom Baker's era. This is not a spoiler. This is, I mean, okay. spoiler for Revenge of the Cybermen from 1974, I guess, but this is established 10 years earlier. <laughs> this is a, a well-known weakness of the Cybermen is that if, if you rub gold into them, they die. To the point where later episodes actually have gold glitter guns that shoot gold dust at Cybermen to kill them. This is nonsense. But I remember reading this amazing article uh, that tried to justify this. It's like, I guess I can explain why Cybermen being allergic to gold makes sense. Because Cybermen are silver, and silver is aspected with the moon, and gold is aspected with the sun. Really? Yes. So the reason why Cybermen are to gold is purely due to alchemical resonance and not at all because of science. <laughs> oh, God. It makes more sense. It makes well, make just as much sense as because it's a soft metal. You would think it's a pretty easy flaw to work around, right? <laughs> just, just seal it. Like, we as humans can invent devices that keep gold particles from going into our bodies or any kind of, <laughs> even smaller particles going into our bodies. There's like, there's like a whole pandemic about this exact problem. And you have the cyber military advanced science can't figure that shit out. Anyway, <sighs> moving on. So Scott and his men are able to overpower the minimal guard left on the bridge. And Adric immediately starts working to try to undo the control lock. Cause it's, it's blocked. Wait, by I'm sorry. You, we, we skipped over some beats that I wanted to touch on. I apologize. Oh, okay. Go ahead to go back. I know that people love the Daleks and they think the Daleks are great and better than Cybermen. I want to ask you how many times have the Daleks managed to get aboard the TARDIS? Huh? Huh? Maybe Twice? once. Maybe once. Okay, so I think they got aboard in Evil of the Daleks, which I only know because people have told me that. It's one of the ones with the missing episodes, so that's maybe vague. And didn't they get aboard once during Rusty Davies's era? I don't remember that. I think there might have been one that tried to materialize inside. It didn't happen. No, that's what I'm thinking of. You're right. He tried to materialize and failed. Oh, no. The doctor materialized the around the Dalek. That was That's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> Doesn't count. Cybermen have broken up into the TARDIS, I want to say, like three or four times, and they've damaged it multiple times. They run around inside the TARDIS. That is how effective and efficient the Cybermen are. Yeah. They also... Can manage stairs. So now they got that going for them too. Just say it. Cybermen <laughs> always over Daleks. But this goes back to they didn't know what to do with the cast. So they had Nissa stay in the TARDIS. They even have the archaeologist come and say during some of this, shouldn't we go out and help? And she says, I find it better to like wait and see what happens. That shows you they don't know what to do with this yeah. crew of people. Yeah. 
and reinforcing it even within the story, which is, I think, a weird beat to take. It is. It's again, we're reaching a point uh, of early fan engagement where the team. I'm gonna stop saying Russell or, or JNT. I'm gonna say that the, the production team knows that fans will ask these questions and they try to provide answers. It's just the answers are worse than leaving it alone. So it's the – we have to explain why Nyssa is on the TARDIS. You, you, don't, you really don't. You have to write better for her is what you really need to do. But if, that, if this decision you make, you don't need to explain it. You don't need to explain everything. But we're not there yet. Both the team is recognizing it and also to be blunt, fans don't recognize this yet. Fans have not mature enough in their fandom because fandom is still relative. This kind of fandom is still a relatively new concept. They think they do need to know all this stuff. So it's 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 an interesting era from that perspective. This is, as an analogy, uh, this is the same era where D and D also it has equivalent situations. They have Dragon Magazine, which is their kind of official house organ thing, and fans genuinely thought that they had to write into TSR to get official rulings on rules. Um, so it's, 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 it's a moment of fandom where they didn't quite, neither side quite knew what the other side wanted. And the other thing I definitely want to touch on is that we know that Tegan's captured, but Tegan kills two or three Cybermen oh, by yeah. herself. She's like she's a badass. showing you the, the badassery that they had for characters. In a later but, serial, she kills Daleks too. Are, are you saying that Tegan could have been the, uh, the Dalek hunter? Yes. I'm okay. Slum Tegan. Doc I Hunter. can see that. I'm like, I, I would, I would listen to that audio. Uh, but no, I mean, like, it's a good point. Like, I mean, if we didn't, there's a, you kind of look backwards on that and that the archetypal companions and how they build on each other. But like, I, I, I would argue that you can't have Ace if you don't have Tegan. You can't have Tegan if you don't have Sarah Jane Smith. There is a definite, line of a specific kind of female companion uh, and, and I think the line kind of goes through there Tegan gets marginalized but t- because the team doesn't know what to do with all the characters Tegan inadvertently ends up with some genuinely good scenes because they have to give it to someone and they don't know what to mm-hmm. do with Tegan and alright that, that's it I want to touch on those I'll, I'll make my later point once we get to the end of this Right. so uh, Adric's fiddling with the lock because it's a mathematical puzzle because of course it is. Uh, his first attempt causes the ship to jump back in time about 65 million years because that's a hell of a mathematical rounding error to make. The doctor monitoring the TARDIS observes that it is about the same time of the extinction of the dinosaurs. Adric's second attempt brings the ship out of warp, though still on course to strike Earth. The impact would not be as devastating. Briggs and Scott and the remaining crew use the opportunity to leave in escape pods. They try to convince Adric to come, but at the last moment he returns, having another insight on defeating the lock. Scott relays their status to the TARDIS, and the cyber leader orders the Cybermen to kill the TARDIS crew, but the doctor smashes Adric's bag and badge into the cyber leader's chest plate, momentarily stunning it and allowing them to disable the Cybermen. No. The doctor, find- oh, the doctor kills the Cybermen. Don't use disable. The doctor kills. Sorry, go ahead. Fair enough. Doctor finds the TARDIS controls have been damaged, making it impossible to rescue Adric. On the bridge, Adric nearly undoing the lock when a weakened Cyberman fires on him, missing him and striking the keyboard, preventing Adric from making any further attempts. The TARDIS crew watches helplessly as the fighter freighter collides with Earth in a massive explosion, killing the dinosaurs and Adric in the process. I want to reiterate the doctor kills. 
because yeah. there's endless debate about the doctor doesn't kill anyone. He uses his companions all the time. The doctor has killed in multiple episodes. It's not necessarily his go-to move, but he is not above doing it. Yeah. For every Genesis of the Daleks, do I have the right speech? There's plenty of instances before the sixth doctor, because the sixth doctor is kind of the sinkhole of the doctor's killed. And it's always positioned in aberration, but you're absolutely right. That's not an aberration. I, I think you could probably look to every single incarnation where this probably happened. Certainly the first doctor has attempted to kill multiple times. <laughs> Episode try- two, he's about to murder a guy with a rock. A rock. Like that's not a. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah. Uh, and the doctor shoots a gun in Earthshock. shock. We kind of skipped over that too. Some of that is because. Eric Saywords is believing that in an era of post, a lot of 80s sci-fi is ultimately a conversation with Star Wars. Sci-fi fundamentally changed on television and movies after Star Wars. And how do different people try to embrace that new spirit? And Eric Saywords' believe is that the action is what drove Star Wars to be as successful it is. So Doctor Who needs to have action. Um, and so if you do that, your lead needs to be involved in action, which means he's going to kill people. That was a larger conversation I actually kind of want to have with you sometime. When I was thinking that we could potentially try to cover Dune, and we could have had a conversation about what if Dune had hit before Star Wars. Because oh, yeah. there's a conversation around that if Dune had happened before Star Wars, that was supposed to, the entire concept of what science fiction was would have changed. So mm-hmm. less action, more enlightenment and self-discovery. Yeah, yeah. I mean, similarly, uh, I can make the argument that uh, the the Matrix was another kind of watershed moment, uh, changing how science fiction films were made too. But yeah, let's have a conversation at some point. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Support Dark U Patreon. Make that happen. That is where that episode would go. <laughs> right. So the whole this whole bit is really kind of Adric's Adric's hero moment, and there's there's almost a good scene here there's almost an amazing moment here it doesn't quite land for for two big reasons the one is well actually three the one first one is uh we have no nothing leading to now that makes us think that adric would sacrifice himself to save everybody nothing about how his character is written particularly in this episode leads to that which again waterhouse almost managed to pull off by making about the problem kind of a sherlockian approach of like i'm just really obsessed with the problem that that almost manages to pull this out but still not quite there i give you that it's not adric didn't think he was going to sacrifice himself adric knew that he could solve it and save the day thereby proving himself to the doctor again because he's had an existence of pulling stuff out at the last minute if we look at the character of adric fair Fair. Through his own through his own brilliance and the doctor being there to like step in at the last minute, which he still has a doctor in the TARDIS. He has he knows that he can solve the problem. And the only reason he doesn't solve it this time is because the Cyberman destroys the console. Right. Uh, 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 that's fair. But the, the second part of this is the very lazy way the TARDIS is sidelined. <laughs> uh, because that's a lot. I can't start to go back and save Adric. Because reasons, the TARDIS controls are damaged. It's like TARDIS is 
we're shipping this. <laughs> the same know? reason the doctor couldn't go back and save Amy and Rory because the angels weird time feel. Right, right. Timey it, wimey. It, it, it's, it's, it's an attempt to, because frankly, what it comes down to is, is John Nathan Turner, a reflection team, uh, really wanted to add drama to this. And so their character death will be very dramatic. And so they killed the character people cared least about, um, which is not how you create drama. Um, and again, it wasn't much leading up to this. Uh, the third piece of why this kind of doesn't work is because it's being a little too cute with the whole setup because it's the this is the thing that causes the dinosaurs to be killed. So even if the TARDIS was not sidelined, the Doctor couldn't change this moment because it's established history. Remember that Remember that time the 13th Doctor goes back in time to stop a, a Nazi time traveler from fucking with Rosa Parks? And they sit there and say that we can't help Rosa Parks in this bus because it's an established moment in time? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Right. It's. Yeah. It's, it's, there's, there's, there's so many things happening that it's trying to point in one direction and it, it jars the whole thing kind of jars with itself. Um, again, Waterhouse almost pulls up the, the last line delivery is a bit weak, but he's 17 years old. He doesn't know. I'm not mad at him about that. What's frustrating. And this goes to what I want to talk about with the tales of TARDIS version uh, is that, well, before you get but, there, the one of the reasons I thought it was going to be so powerful is that no companions had died un, ex, un, for like twenty years, like with Sarah Kingdom and I'm Katrina. Obviously, at all because I mean, no Victoria fucking died. <laughs> <laughs> she was just not an airlock, my friend. <laughs> it died since since then, so it had been a long period of time. So they thought that that would also be a great shock on top of that. Sure, yeah. The instinct wasn't wrong. The execution was off. Yeah. And what's even worse, and what's again, where I'm leading to, is that uh, it ends with a bunch of shocked faces. You don't see this in the Tales of Tars version. You see this in the original episode. The credits are silent over a broken uh, star, uh, which is, again, a, a move pulled from soap operas. Uh, of the, t- t- you have no music over the credits, and you show a still scene that's very much a, a soap opera. Let's help you know, sh- really reinforce his character died moment. But then this almost never gets mentioned again. There's a there's one stray reference in the next episode about it, and that's it. Adric's death has no meaningful impact on the crew. But in the Tales of Tardis version, uh, the premise is. The Doctor's companions are in a memory TARDIS, whatever the hell that is. And they need to tell stories about the the things that they experienced because that's the structure of the show. It's 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 silly and it's not. But what's interesting about this version is the fifth doctor and Tegan are together and they're excited and it's like, we, we, what story are we gonna tell? And Doctor's like, you know what story we have to tell. And Tegan's like, I don't wanna. I don't wanna talk about that. And so what they do is they reframe it of like, we should have talked about this a long time ago. We never did because it traumatized us too much. So we just bottled it up. And it does a lot to salvage this because when you're watching it, it's like – if you're watching it, you're probably a fan. Um, and so it's like we never talked about this because it hurt too much. 
So he pretended it didn't happen because it hurt too much. I'm like, okay, that's actually a pretty decent way to explain that. But that's not what happened. <laughs> what happened was the writers forgot how magic existed and completely undercut the point they're trying to make, which is that this is a dramatic show with consequences. Yeah. Yeah. But, but this is considered one of the, the seminal episodes of this doctor's run. And I think they've yes. even shown it multiple times when it's been an award, not an award season, but equivalently something like that for it to represent that era of the doctor. Yeah. This is uh, kind of our remit is that we've been trying to hit important episodes. I mean, good ones, but also important ones. Uh, so like, this is not in like my list of favorite fifth doctor episodes, but it is an important one. And it, it feels worth covering also because it does really illustrate a lot of what makes this run of doctor who different from previous runs. It's trying new things. It's, it's trying a different formula. It's got a different crew. It's got a different vibe. There's a different dynamic. Uh, there's a lot that's interesting here and there's a lot that's working well in spite of its parts, but also what's most frustrating about earth shock is you can almost see the missed potential. It, it's the this could have been if it's not been an action serial, it's been a horror. It's something akin to Tomb of the Cybermen, right? Which this thing's so clearly trying to do. Or the horror thing rock. Yeah, yeah. If it had been like a, really embraced the horror, which which Doctor Who can't do for reasons. They've they've been specifically told they cannot do horror. If they could, this would have been probably one of the classics. And it still is considered a classic, but I think mostly because of the last 15 minutes, not because of the whole serial. Uh, but they, they walk up to the line conceptually. Uh, uh, the Cybermen are at their most scary, like you said. And and like also like said, their look is actually one of the better ones of yeah. the classic run. Um, they mess with, they keep messing with it, and it, it bothers me. It's actually... Like they gave them black handles at one point in time and they, they, they mess with the chin thing. But like the, yeah, the, the transparent, I can see a little bit of humanity in there. Yeah. It's a guy's chin spray paint silver, but it still works for the budget they had. It was exceptional. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts about uh, earth shock? No, you, you summed it up pretty well. And I just go back to say that Adric was basically not well received because he was like a, a young male 17 year old in a sci-fi series it mm -hmm. never works out well much how jason todd didn't work out well either for batman <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Oh, the fans wanted him dead and so he was yeah that, that's a fun moment of, of, of a company going the fans will never do this and it's like don't <laughs> fans were a bloodthirsty lot <laughs> Do you have anything else for this episode? No, I, I was just going to say, uh, like I said, this was not well-received at the time. Um, it was meant to be the big fan-pleasing serial. It was not seen as such. Uh, and this starts a souring of JNT's relationship with fandom. So this is kind of the peak. I'm going to appease the fans. Well, fuck them. They don't know what they want. And so he kind of goes the opposite direction. Uh, he, he stops talking to Doctor Who. He starts lying to Doctor Who magazine. Effectively. And as a result, the fifth doctor's stuff gets a little more uneven. There's there's some not great serials after this, but also some pretty good ones. Like uh, uh, the Turlo run uh, is actually 
for as mismanaged as it is, the, the Black Guardian Turlo stuff is actually interesting. The idea of having an objectively antagonistic companion is an interesting concept that they do interesting things with, often badly. And it goes back and it links to consequences that are affecting the Doctor because it goes back to the key to time and the Black mm-hmm. Guardian when the Doctor foiled him for the fourth in the fourth generation with Romana. Right. Yeah. And I think, honestly, now that you say that, maybe it's one of, my, one of, I think, the frustrations with the Fifth Doctor is that so much of the televised Fifth Doctor, at least the early half of the televised Fifth Doctor, is so much the consequences of Tom Baker that it never quite leaves Tom Baker's shadow, and when it finally does, it's too late. Yeah. Sort of that. My quote for mm-hmm. this is going to be a uh, brave heart, Tegan. <laughs> The, the episode that we're doing next was, was hard because it was my choice and I, I waffled. And so that's why Eddie also was first doing this one because I almost went with Kinda, which I think is a great but problematic episode. Mm-hmm. And then I said, no enlightenment because I love enlightenment. Oh, I think enlightenment is so good. Is a juicy episode. We could have a lot of fun discussing. Yeah. But if we're talking about important fifth doctor episodes, then we have to do. The case of Andronzani. It's the final Fifth Doctor episode, and it is the one where I'll go and say it now that Peter Davison said if he'd had more scripts like this, he would yep. have stayed in the role longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's. Oh, it's it's an, it, it, it is, I think, rightly considered like one of the top ten Doctor classic Doctor Who stories. Period. It's it's it, it's really really good. So yeah, but you're right. I mean, there's there's a middle bit here of, of just genuinely fun. like enlightened oh god it's tall ships in space how can you be mad about it? it's so good we may have to come back and do some more classic doctor who sooner than later I even agree, if we just pick like, even if we just pick each of us picks one episode from a doctor and we have to rotate doctors yeah maybe, maybe that'll be skip, our maybe we skip trotton though well sorry maybe we skip uh the first doctor Cardinal. yeah and then we start uh, the second doctor <laughs> You know what? You say that, but like, there's part of me that kind of wants to do the Gunslingers because you don't see very many classic Doctor Who comedies, and the Gunslingers is actually pretty funny. But part of it's funny is because us as Americans watching the BBC in the 60s try to do American accent. <laughs> but would you be ready to give up the fourth Doctor pick? Because if you did uh, no, Hartnell, no, 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 no. I would do Trout. No, no. You do Pertwee, I would get to do Baker. Are you willing to give up your Doctor to let yeah, me pick? I see. Yeah, see, no, no, no. Because no, you don't know that. what I'd pick. <laughs> I'd pick God something knows. Eddie probably doesn't want. You pick Destiny of Dollars or something like that. Probably the Stones of um, Stones of Blood is high on my list because we didn't go Stones with that. Stones of Blood's great. No, Stones of Blood's awesome because he does the thing with the wig. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I would do it. And it's also a good episode. <laughs> or the Horror of Fane Rock. It would, they'd be more middle Baker. Maybe I might focus more on the Gothic Horror ones too. Or when he meets Mobius. So it's, it's a I whole mean, thing. Space zombies or space vampires. You can't do can't miss it. space vampires. Yeah. But anyway, right, yeah. Uh, next one's going to be a, a classic fifth doctor. Episode. Uh, Eddie, if people want to buy your stuff, where can they go to buy your stuff? Well, before they do that, you are forgetting something. You're a key part of this run. We've been a while. We've done it, but you have to do your quote from the fifth doctor. I did. Did you? Braveheart Tegan. Oh, Braveheart Tegan. Okay. I thought you, I thought there's the one written here, but then I, I switched I, it. No, see, I thought you're saying Braveheart Tegan, like Tegan who warrior Tegan who goes out and, and murders people. 
<laughs> no, no. Like, that is the most oh, iconic Dr. Yes. Tegan line. And I changed it from what's on the here because you talked about the te- Tales of Tardis with the fifth Doctor and Tegan. I felt that it was more appropriate than what I had there. No, that that, that is fair. That is fair. Anyway, I'm so, yes. if people want to talk to me online, uh, if you want to buy my stuff, uh, best way to buy my stuff is to go to my website, which is pugstudy.com. If you like games about dogs, check out my creator-owned stuff at realmsofpugmire.com. If you want to talk to me, I am on Blue Sky, I am on Mastodon, or you can come to the Darker Hue Discord, where today I am reluctantly admitting that Echo wasn't that bad. <laughs> Uh, if you want to buy my stuff, you can go to the Darker Studios website. You can go to IPR. They still got copies of Haunted West. Or you go to Chaosium and pick up Harmon Bouncing Edition. And if you're looking to talk to me online, your best bet is probably the Darker Hue Discord, where I'm still posting Star Trek memes and <sighs> disagreeing with Eddie about some superhero stuff. And we're having an in-depth discussion about how, when written properly, Captain America and Doctor Doom are some of the best characters in Marvel. Yes. Yes, which someone asked me asked us where they could listen to that, and I was like, I don't think we've actually talked about it on air. I know we talked about Cap, I don't think we talked about Doctor Doom, so maybe we need to do that at some point in time because doing a short Doctor Doom run might be fun. Yeah, we we should definitely do that speechless run. But with that, um, we're not talking about that yet. Instead, uh, we will see you next week where we talk about the caves of Androzani. Be seeing you.